Universal Design for Learning principles were developed to make our courses more accessible for all students. In this episode, we examine how universal design principles can be expanded to address the trauma that can adversely impact student learning. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Andrea Nickisher. Andrea is an associate professor and program coordinator for the adult education program in the Social and Psychological Foundations of Education Department at SUNY Buffalo State. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Right before this, we were talking a little bit about this, and you were a student here, so welcome back. Thank you. I loved my time at Oswego State, and I still have my mug and my sweatshirt in my office at Buffalo State. So it's great to continue being part of the SUNY family. It's so great to have you here. Today's teas are, Andrea, are you drinking tea? I am. I actually love tea. And today I'm drinking my regular afternoon tea, which is a double green matcha from the Republic of Tea. Nice. And I noted like a really beautiful mug. I am an avid tea drinker since I was in my teens. So it's wonderful to be able to talk about tea, one of my favorite subjects. It looks like a mint colored mug with, is it butterflies? They are birds. Birds of peace, I think, is the theme of the mug. Awesome. And I am drinking a ginger tea. And I have English breakfast today. And next time you're on campus, stop by the CELTA office where we have over 100 teas available. Oh, I would love to. Always welcoming tea drinkers. We invited you here to talk about the presentation that you gave at the SUNY Conference on Instruction and Technology. Rebecca was able to attend that. I wasn't able to because I had to be in another session at the time. So this is a chance for me to catch up a little bit on that and so that we can share this more broadly. Your presentation was titled Universal Design for Trauma. Maybe we should start by talking about how prevalent trauma is. That is a really great and I think complicated question. I actually have been working with trauma since really right out of my undergraduate degree at Oswego. And I started work at a rape crisis center and I worked in the sex offense squad of a police department as a victim's advocate. And my interest when I moved into education was in studying the impact of trauma on educational outcomes and what I call the life pipeline or career and life trajectories. But when I wrote this paper, it was 2019 in the fall, before COVID, before we knew what was coming. And at the time, we were really looking at statistics around 70% of adults in the U.S. will have experienced trauma at some point in their life. Obviously, depending on what age group we're talking about, the statistics will be different, but over the course of the life, around 70%. Now, today, post-COVID, with the 
extreme increase in gun violence and mass shootings with a televised violent attack on the U.S. Capitol, with a war, climate disasters and crisis. I think it's really difficult to measure what the true number is and that indeed the best response is to assume that close to 100% of the population has dealt with some form of trauma in their life and certainly through the global pandemic and more recent crises. As I'm sure you know, here in Buffalo, we had a white supremacist mass shooting towards the end of the semester. Our students live and work in that community. And so for us, in returning to school in the fall, we will certainly be treating the situation as if every student has a history of trauma. You and others have investigated the impact of trauma on academic outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about this research? Absolutely. There's a fairly large body of quantitative research in Europe, as well as some studies here in the U.S., showing a clear, significant, negative relationship between trauma and academic outcomes. Trauma is interrupting the academic process, leading to lowered academic success or achievement, as well as lowered career status or career achievement. And really, some of the research can show that over the course of a lifetime, we're seeing actually a significant reduction in earnings. So you're seeing the sort of interruption points when trauma is experienced during youth and adolescence. That is interrupting the educational outcomes. So if we're seeing that trauma before age 16, some of the studies before age 18 or 21, we're seeing that interruption during adolescence, during emerging adulthood, that really important period between 18 and whenever you become an adult, which you know can vary based on who you are, but usually we're looking at 18 to 29 and beyond. That's the most important sort of period for setting up your future career and earnings. So when we see trauma happening before or during that period, we're seeing the most significant impact on educational outcomes, career outcomes, and again, lifetime earnings. I conduct qualitative research. And so I'm building on the work of Jenny Horsman from Canada and other researchers who've studied through qualitative methods, the direct impact on education. She has really terrific work, Too Scared to Learn. And my research validates and extends her previous work showing that specifically sexual violence makes it extremely difficult to learn, work, complete assignments, engage in the educational experience during adolescence, emerging adult. Um, so my participants were raped or sexually assaulted as a child or as a teenager. And we really went through how that process impacted their educational trajectory. And the results are just very significant in terms of how they describe the change in their relationship with schooling after the sexual assault. So you have students who are honor students, all A's, dropping to C's, D's, F's, and really nobody asking about trauma. What is going on here? Lots of questions. 
but nobody getting at the question of was there a trauma and specifically was there a sexual assault or sexual violence. The last piece of that point is that for my participants, we are talking about a significant change to their engagement with schooling. And one of the most famous, or I should say, one of the most moving quotes from my research, which has been published in a few different areas, one of my participants said, I go to school and they want me to know about the first, second, third president, but I don't care about the first, second, and third president. I'm thinking about going home to slip my wrist. Schooling just doesn't have importance anymore. And so I had participants who spoke about having commitment to schooling, wanting to go to Ivy League schools, wanting to have really significant career aspirations. And then after the sexual assault, just completely focusing on an eating disorder. Schooling was replaced by this unhealthy mechanism for dealing with trauma. So Right now, trauma is widespread, and we don't know yet what the long-term impacts will be for the students of the COVID pandemic, for the students dealing with widespread school shootings and fear of mass shootings. But we have a clue from the previous research that there are serious risks to long-term educational outcomes and career achievements and earnings. There's been a lot of conversation during the pandemic about digital accessibility and universal design for learning to address students with disabilities and mental health has certainly come more into that conversation. And you've proposed a universal design for trauma. Can you talk a little bit about what that framework looks like and how that relates to universal design for learning? Oh, yes, I'd be happy to. Let me start by saying I'm building off the amazing work done with universal design, starting with construction accessibility questions and moving into learning. And in fact, many scholars had previously tied trauma and mental health directly to accessibility concerns. I'm certainly not the first to make that connection. But I think I was in a great position having the experience working in trauma as a rape crisis counselor and then moving into education, teaching 100% online for the last 10 years, having that sort of perspective both worlds. For me, universal design is all about making sure that all of our students can fairly and successfully participate in learning. And so we've done a lot of work thinking about accessibility in a variety of different settings, but not much had been done in terms of asking questions about trauma for my work as a rape crisis counselor and through my research with survivors of trauma, often was discussed that students would struggle in particular scenarios in their education. So a universal design builds on this great previous work of universal design for learning and focuses specifically on addressing the needs of students with a trauma history. Like all forms of universal design, this benefits everyone. So even if you don't have a trauma history, sometimes you may experience distress if content is presented in a way that is not thoughtful and that content has the ability to cause distress among the students. 
So trauma triggers are something we talk a lot about in the trauma field and certainly is a major issue of concern in educating students with the history of trauma. Trauma triggers are really very personal, typically. So it might be a sight, a smell, a song, something that brings you back to that trauma. But there are some content areas that are universally considered universal triggers or universally triggering content on war, content on sexual assault, sexual violence, content on suicide. These content areas can even cause distress in students without a trauma history. So universal design is certainly focused on students with a trauma history, but has the ability to make the learning environment more successful for everyone, healthier for every student. In your framework, you lay out five principles for universal design for trauma. Can you give us a little insight into those five principles? Yes, I can. So these are the five things that I focus on in my work. So there are certainly other things that I think can and should be brought into the conversation. But for me, the five things that I really focus on when building a course address what I think are some of the most important concerns for students. So I should say I teach courses on sexual assault and family violence and other areas that are potentially universally distressing. And so I started building this concept of universal design probably 10 years ago in what I called teaching sensitive topics online. I did a lot of presentations and writing and professional development about teaching sensitive topics, but universal design goes beyond that to say that every class has the potential for triggering past trauma. So it's not just those courses teaching sensitive topics, but all courses. And one of the reasons I moved into a more universal focus was because a lot of my students in my courses who were not being taught anything potentially distressing were disclosing violence to me in personal journals and other assignments, in large part because they knew my professional history and research area, but also because trauma can be triggered outside of those universals. Uh, but let me talk a little bit about those pieces that I've included in a universal design for trauma. And the first one is strategic content planning. So the first question educators must ask themselves, is this trauma content central to the learning objectives of the course or program? So when we are teaching a course, truly any course, the first thing we want to do is scan that course to see if there is any potentially distressing content included. And again, we're looking for those universal trauma triggers, war violence, violent imagery, sexual assault, police violence, etc. So the first step is really to say, is there anything in this course that could trigger trauma? And the next step is to say, if it's here, does it need to be here? I'm very concerned about the, what I call gratuitous inclusion of trauma content. I am a dedicated proponent of academic freedom. I never want to tell any faculty member what they should teach, what they can teach, but I do encourage faculty to take a close look at all materials they use that have the potential to be 
distressing and or trigger past trauma and to ask themselves, is this content necessary in this course? Is it directly linked to the student learning outcomes? And is it the best possible resource to use in this course? I teach courses on family violence. The entire course is potentially triggering. I cannot remove that material, nor should I. It is directly linked to the student learning outcomes. So it's going to stay in the course. But I've had other courses where I've wanted to include something. One example would be my diversity course, where I've had materials included and I've had to go back and reconsider if it is the right way to approach the material we're covering in the course. Even if the material is linked to the student learning outcomes, it's asking, do I need to include this potentially distressing, potentially triggering content in the course? That's step one. And then if we do need to include it, we move on to another step or how to deal with that. But I'm very concerned about just including a story about incest in a certain community because we like the story and then not really thinking about how the trauma of that story may impact the learning in the course. Because we don't want our students learning to be stifled because they have been triggered or are experiencing distress. So it's really about the thoughtful process of selecting materials that are directly linked to our student learning outcomes and not including any gratuitous. So for folks that aren't typically teaching topics that would be universally triggering, this first step is the key one for them to focus on? Well, yes. I mean, it's the beginning. I think they're all key in, in their own way. But this one is most closely linked to our step on content and trigger warnings, which is an important part of the process. But I do think this is one that opens a lot of faculty's minds to what is going on in their own course. A lot of faculty members, if they are not explicitly teaching a course on a sensitive topic, may not be doing the thoughtful review of content to sort of find where there may be the potential for trauma or distress. So this is definitely a universal step that applies to all faculty members teaching all courses, both those with trauma content and those that do not focus on a trauma topic. A while ago, I ran into a situation where I had a reading in my introductory microeconomics class that looked at the marginal costs and marginal benefits of trying to improve safety on airlines by adding additional exit doors and such things. What I didn't realize was that I had a student in the class whose father had just been shot down in the Gulf War just a week or so before that. And ever since then, I've been much more careful in selecting material that might have that sort of an impact because it was something I had not considered and it had not been an issue before until it was. That is such a great point. And even I, who have been working in this issue of teaching sensitive topics for so long and thinking about trauma, have found that in the courses that don't focus on a sensitive topic, I'm more likely to not be as thoughtful about the potential impact of materials. Thank you for sharing that example. Very relevant. So I think the second principle in your 
framework is trigger and content warnings. Yes. And step two, the second principle is really connected, obviously, to the first step or principle in that if we have identified content that has the potential to trigger past trauma or cause distress, then we need to include a trigger and or content warning. I actually did a project on trigger warnings, a research project around 2018. And you may remember 2015-16, there was a lot of heated debate about trigger warnings. Are we coddling students? Are we dumbing down the curriculum? Are we violating academic freedom? And where I landed on that in this research project was that this in no way requires a faculty member not to teach something. It simply is a matter of accessibility for their students. By telling your students in advance that something potentially triggering or distressing is coming, you give them the opportunity to prepare for that learning. When a trigger comes out of the blue, when you're not expecting it, that is one of the most high-risk times for having a negative reaction or a negative trauma response. So it doesn't require faculty to change what they're teaching or to eliminate rigor in any way. It simply allows students to know in advance that the content may be challenging to them in some way. So it was great that I was able to do that research project before this. And in fact, several scholars who were on the, it really was a debate. Many of the papers were written as a debate. Many of the scholars on the side of the pro-trigger warning debate linked it directly to accessibility. And so I was able to sort of build from their wonderful work and from the arguments they made in that 2015-16-17 trigger warning debate. So what is a trigger warning? What is a content warning? It does not need to be complicated. I trained the medical students at the University at Buffalo in family violence identification and reporting. And my number one takeaway is do not overcomplicate. It does not need to be complicated. All you need to do is say, we are going to be talking about, reading about, watching a film on, whatever the activity is, a topic that could be distressing to some students. Please know that this content is coming, and then I always refer them back to the resources on campus and in the community. It can be one sentence, a simple heads up to let students know this may be distressing content. And if you're on YouTube or Twitter or TikTok, you'll see actually a lot of these videos and imagery is now labeled with those really quick trigger and content warnings. Just a sentence is fine. Again, you're just letting a student know it's coming. I don't want to catch you off guard. The next point in your framework for universal design for trauma is what to do about those situations where there may be some content that will be triggering for people. And what do you suggest in those cases? So my next step or principle, whatever we want to call it, is alternative readings and assignments. So I always encourage faculty who are teaching, particularly 
courses that are focused on sensitive material, but even those that include some unit or smaller section with potentially distressing or triggering material to set up where possible alternative readings and assignments. So I'll give you some examples of what I do. In my course on family violence, the whole course is potentially triggering. I cannot remove every reading and assignment, but I am very thoughtful about how I approach the work in that course. For example, we read a autobiography which describes the experience of a sexual assault during college and the long-term impact on that woman's life, including drug addiction, recovery, and moving on through the phases of her life. I like this book because it shows the long-term impact in a narrative way. As a qualitative researcher, I love those narrative data. But there is one chapter in the text, which is an extremely graphic description of the stranger rape. And so I label this reading ahead of time. I tell students before the course begins, before they have bought their books, on the reading calendar and in several locations, you do not need to read this chapter. This chapter is distressing. It is potentially triggering, and you don't need to read it to get the value of the text. It is a chapter you can eliminate without any repercussion to your learning about this topic. So in that case, we're still reading the book, but we're taking out the most distressing part of the text. And I always make it optional. And a key point of any alternative reading or alternative assignment is that it has to be universal. You cannot ask a student to come to you to seek an accommodation. We do not want to force a trauma survivor to come to us to disclose their trauma, to seek an alternative reading or assignment. Please don't do that. It needs to be built in. That's universal design, right? That is the whole concept of universal design is it is built in for everyone. So that optional chapter is optional for everyone. It does not matter what their trauma history is. And in that same course for the final assessment, which is really the big culminating assessment for the course, I allow the student to choose from five different options, a research paper, a book review, a lesson plan, a community service experience, or creating a domestic violence workplace protocol. I do this because it gives students choice and agency over how they will engage in a very time-consuming way with content that is potentially triggering. So if one of my students is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, they may be very comfortable creating a domestic violence workplace protocol that material may not be triggering to them in the same way that forcing them to write a paper about childhood sexual abuse would be. Perhaps they want to write a paper on elder abuse. Also fine. We're allowing them to decide for them what is the best, healthiest way for me to engage with this content and how will I be most successful. And I can tell you as a faculty member that grades many, many graduate papers, 
having a variety of different projects come in every semester is a benefit for me too. It makes that grading process much more interesting and students love it. And it is very closely linked to universal design for learning, which values choice for students. And in adult education, we value that self-directed learning and giving students the agency to really tie their work to what's important to them in their career or personal life. You mentioned earlier about providing access to campus and community resources as one of your key steps. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And that is step or principle four. I am extremely focused on this and I really tell faculty everywhere I go, I tell faculty I do this and ask them to do this and I show them my Blackboard course site and in all of those Brightspace meetings, I'm asking where can I put my campus and community resources. I build campus resources and community resources. It has to be both. Some students will never seek assistance on campus. Many students who've experienced trauma do not want to relive that trauma where they go to school, where they work, and they would rather seek services off campus. You have to provide both campus and community resources so the student can select what is best for their needs. But I build in those campus and community resources on my syllabus, of course, but also right on my Blackboard course page, soon to be Brightspace. I put them in the left-hand navigation bar at the top. They are front and center in every single course that I teach. And in the post-COVID world, not post-COVID, but world after COVID came, students really need these resources. We're finding at Buffalo State, as I'm sure you are at Oswego, that the student needs for crisis intervention and mental health counseling and support are extensive. So it's been very well received by my students. And I just build it in, make it a priority. Every time you log on, you can see that there is help for you should you need it. This is also important for me because I have worked in the field as a crisis counselor, doing crisis intervention, doing street outreach and advocacy, but I am not a counselor at Buffalo State, and I cannot counsel my students at Buffalo State. It would be unethical for me to try to take on that role. So I want to make sure my students can go to someone that can provide those services to them. And so before they try to come to me to seek those services, which I cannot ethically provide, I've made sure they know where they can go. And if they come to me, I listen and refer, listen and refer. That is my role as a faculty member. Faculty cannot and should not be providing counseling. Such good reminders. I think often when faculty are thinking about trauma, they're thinking this is not a thing I can take on. I'm not qualified. I don't have this expertise. But the reminders that the job here is to refer and to provide those resources is a really helpful one. Yes, absolutely. It can be scary to think about opening the can of worms. And that's the phrasing the survivors in my research study use, particularly related regarding their K through 12 teachers, thinking maybe they didn't want to ask me questions about if I was a survivor because they didn't want to open that can of worms. They didn't know how to deal with it. But a faculty member's role is to listen and refer. We are not counselors. And even though I'm qualified, 
it would be unethical for me to attempt to do that in that role. I remember from your presentation that you also talked about having students reflect on a self-care plan to make sure that they have actions that they can take in case they did become distressed. Can you talk a little bit about that? And does that relate to this step? Yes, it does. Thank you. I took good notes. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yes, a self-care plan is critical. All of my students do a lot of work with personal journals. As an online instructor, I find that journaling is a great way for me to have a one-on-one conversation with my students in a safe and private space. And so the first journal entry in every course, every semester is setting your goals and objectives for the course. What do you hope to learn? How will you know you've learned it? What do you need from me to be successful in this course? And then I include the question, please create a self-care plan for the semester. How will you take care of yourself if you encounter distressing content or distressing situations in this course? And in that personal journal, the students can begin to build that self-care plan. I can comment on that plan, remind them of those campus and community resources, and be sure that they have thought in advance about what they will do if they experience distress or trauma. Is that something that you recommend for courses that might not be those sensitive topics? Yes. Many semesters, I have more disclosures in courses with no focus on trauma content, but perhaps we are talking about K-12 schooling and a student is brought back to an incident of bullying and they've been triggered by content that was not directly related to bullying or potentially triggering topic, but they were brought back in time and in so doing, they experienced distress. I do it in every course. I recommend everyone do it in every course universally because it is an easy step. And again, our students, particularly right now, are experiencing so much in the world that a self-care plan is, I think, extremely valuable for everyone in every course. And the last principle you list is instructor protections. Could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. This is one of my passion projects, is thinking about and talking about the impact of teaching, researching, and writing trauma on a faculty member. So I've written about my own experience with vicarious and secondary trauma in an article, Vicarious Trauma Inside the Academy, published in the journal Higher Education. It's an autoethnography that really goes through the process of discovering I was experiencing secondary traumatic stress and learning how to deal with that in my various roles, certainly starting with my work as a rape crisis counselor, but then experiencing it again when I was interviewing and transcribing those long and painful qualitative interviews from survivors of sexual assault. Um, dealing with um, my role on campus as an expert and being asked to watch a film and comment on what to do. I often found myself in a situation where it was assumed that I would be fine just because of the role I have on campus or as a researcher, as a writer, whatever it may be. But a faculty member is not immune to the distress 
from the content they are teaching and from student disclosure. Even in courses where I am not teaching trauma content, students disclose to me, they find me on campus, they come up to me at poster sessions, they seek me out because they know what I've done and what I do with my research. And so that has had an impact on me. And I have tried to speak about it and advocate for faculty members taking care of themselves. In my scholarship, I really put it at a higher level. I think uh, campuses need to take care of their faculty members a little bit better than perhaps they have in the past. The world is changing. We are dealing with students with high levels of stress, distress. We are dealing with mass shootings in our community, with political instability, with a range of illnesses and viruses and global pandemics. It is not an easy time to be a faculty member, and it is not helpful to pretend that we are immune to feelings because we are not. And so I always talk to faculty about taking care of themselves. What is your self? care plan. Because for me, when I experienced that secondary traumatic stress, I couldn't write. These journal articles took a lot longer than I wanted them to because I just couldn't go back to the material to repeat it again. It is difficult to do the work well if you are not healthy, if you are dealing with stress, distress, or potentially vicarious or secondary trauma. Um, So for me, that's a big piece. This is, I would say, an exploding area of research. So there is just myriad scholarship right now coming out around faculty members, instructors, and teachers, and their own experiences with trauma, secondary trauma, and secondary traumatic stress. So There are many wonderful articles available for those faculty members who'd like to read more. And I am always available. If anyone ever wants to have a chat about teaching sensitive topics or about universal design for trauma or just dealing with trauma in our students and in the world, they are welcome to email me. And I am always available to my friends in SUNY and beyond. What are some things that you would recommend faculty think about for a self-care plan? I know this is something that's on the minds of a lot of faculty having gone through a couple of years of teaching during a pandemic and really dealing with a lot of student disclosures. Absolutely. A very pressing issue. I actually spoke at a professional development conference at Fredonia this winter break, which was 100% focused on self-care. How do we take care of ourselves? How do we deal with this very chaotic world, very distressing world? Stress and de-stress and trauma, when it doesn't end, it really compounds. So if the COVID pandemic was over, we'd all be dealing with the potential distress, trauma, and after effects of that, but we would be ideally moving forward and healing. It's not over. It's changing and growing and shifting, and we have no idea what is coming next. That is really a dangerous situation when it comes to trauma, because when the trauma is ongoing, we just don't have the time to heal. So self-care becomes that much more important. Things I think about, one, preparing yourself 
doing a trigger warning for yourself for those weeks, months, days that you will be specifically dealing with trauma content in your course. Two, making sure you understand what your roles and responsibilities are. Many faculty members are not aware that they are a mandatory reporter on campus for sexual assault and for domestic violence. Many faculty members do not know about the campus care team or emergency response team. It is really important for faculty to educate themselves on what their roles are, their responsibilities are, and who is available to assist them. Faculty are not alone, and if they feel like they are alone, the threat of distress and trauma is much greater. But I know that when I get a disclosure, I first have to report it through the online system if it is a recent disclosure. I rarely get disclosures that are current. In fact, I don't think I've ever had one where a student is currently experiencing sexual assault or domestic violence, though certainly many faculty do receive these. I think it's just a matter of teaching graduate students online. It's a different setting, but I am prepared for those. And the first step for any disclosure, no matter when the incident was, is to report through your campus reporting system. And then I contact the care team and I often go directly to the dean of students to ask for help. What do I need to do here? Can you remind me about my legal obligation? I've given the student resources. What else can I offer the student? If I am at all concerned about suicidal ideation, I immediately involve the crisis response or care team to assist with that. Knowing that I have a team of people behind me, that I can email the dean of students and she will get right back to me is extremely helpful because a really big threat is feeling like you are alone. So preparing for content in advance, understanding your roles, responsibilities, and who is on campus to help you, and then doing those things which to you are self-care. Buffalo State has offered meditation courses just about one every two weeks. I have taken all of them. That's something that is really helpful and useful to me. For other people, it may be exercise or reading a certain book or going to a friend's home, whatever it is. That's the personal piece. So you have the campus understanding and then the personal piece as well. Well, thanks so much for sharing such really important content, especially as we head into the fall and faculty are nervous and anxious about what this next semester of pandemic might look like. Thank you for having me. And just the last thing I'll say is that faculty should know that they are not alone and that their distress, stress, or feelings of trauma are justified by the world that we are living in and that no one needs to pretend they are above the humanity of the time that we're living in. And so I hope your campus and all of the campuses across SUNY and beyond begin to really prioritize the mental and emotional health, not only of students, but of faculty and staff as well. I think that's an issue that all of our campuses need to focus on. And it's been a tough time out there for everyone. So thank you. Thank you. And we always end with the question, which is very much related, of what's next? Well, what's next? I'll answer it in several ways. One, I think that we need to continue the conversation and really advocating for 
addressing trauma in our higher education classes, research. Every setting in higher education must become aware that trauma is here. It is in our society. It is impacting our students. It is impacting our faculty. And we cannot pretend it is not an issue of concern. So for me, I'll be continuing to write about and advocate for trauma concerns being addressed in higher education. I am working on the online oversight committee at my campus, and I'm working with one of the instructional designers. We've talked a lot about creating more training opportunities for faculty members related to learning about trauma and addressing trauma in their courses and among their students. So I'm excited to continue that work as well. But ultimately, the world has changed. Higher education has changed. We are never going back to the world that we had before. And so we have to adapt to those changes that have really come very quickly in the past few years. And so step one is sort of admitting that higher education isn't going to be what it used to be and that we are ready and willing and able to do what needs to be done to help our students be successful. Because I expect in the fall, we are going to have students with a myriad of very significant challenges. And we are going to have faculty who need to be prepared to help those students address those challenges. And it is a positive sign that students are so much more willing to disclose their mental health concerns than I think they ever had been in the past. That may make secondary trauma a little bit more challenging to address, but it does allow us to get support to students when it's needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, really making sure faculty understand they don't have to solve the students' problems. That's not your role. You are a teacher. Your role is to listen, refer, and where needed to connect directly to those campus resources like your care team and your sexual assault response office. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I love the opportunity to be back virtually on the Oswego campus, and it was wonderful speaking with you both. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.